Hello and welcome to Critical Theory in Context, the podcast of the Center for Humanities and Social Change in Berlin. My name is Rahel Yegi. I'm the director of the center. And I'm very happy to welcome you to the first episode of our new podcast series. And as this is the very first episode, a few words in advance about the concept of critical theory in context. In this series, we will publish conversations with theorists and activists. We will analyze social crisis and the possibilities of the emancipatory overcoming. Our goal is to bring social theory and emancipatory practice into dialogue. We want to reflect upon the practical meaning of theory and the theoretical underpinnings of social practice. The motto of our podcast could be summed up in one word. Critical philosophy is the self-clarification of our time about its conflicts and wishes. For this task and our very first episode, I can't imagine a more fitting guest than Nancy Fraser. Nancy Fraser is Henry and Louise Loeb Professor of Philosophy and Political Theory at the New School for Social Research in New York, and of course, one of the leading and most influential critical theorists of our times. As a Marxist feminist, her work is grounded in a commitment to analyzing the manifold social struggles of the present and by situating them in an expanded conception of capitalist society. Her encompassing theory of social reproduction thus provides us with a non-reductionist understanding of interrelated layers of oppression and exploitation, as well as the manifold forms of crisis tendencies our present societies entail. Our topic for this episode is one of the very obvious and pressing crises of today, the looming threat of climate catastrophe and the question what critical theory can contribute to our understanding of it. Nancy has engaged with this question in a recent article in the New Left Review entitled Climates of Capital. In the following conversation, I've tried to push her a little further on her analysis of the connection between capitalism and ecological destruction. Our conversation covers why capitalism couldn't solve the problem of ecological destruction, what type of crisis we are facing, the way today's manifold struggles are interconnected, as well as the question what the acute threat of climate catastrophe should mean for our relation to nature. As Nancy said at some point in the conversation, capitalism as the blind logic of capital accumulation decides many of the most fundamental social questions behind our backs. Now it is high time to put them on the political agenda again. This is Critical Theory in Context. Our guest today is Nancy Fraser. And now we dive into the struggles and crisis of the present with Climates of Capital. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Great to see you. Welcome to our new podcast. Thank you, Rahel. It is a pleasure. With climate catastrophe looming and ecological disasters affecting more and more people all over the world, and even in wealthy states, the question of ecology has moved center stage in public debates and many political movements. But what motivates a critical theorist to address these questions of ecology? 
Is it that we are all in the same boat these days, so that we do not need to focus on the so-called social questions, on questions of domination and power, for example, but on ecology instead? What does a critical theory of society, in contrast or in addition to natural science or climate science, have to say about this question of ecology? I think it's unavoidable given the seriousness of the crisis we face. Just as an ordinary inhabitant of the planet, anybody who isn't in some kind of denial has got to be thinking about this question. And of course, there are uh, plenty of social movements addressing it. So the, the topic is, is unavoidable in some sense, but there's a, uh, a, a deeper reason why critical theorists should be thinking about it. And that's because we should at least consider the possibility, the intuition that our critical theories of society, which purport to try to understand the deep structural forces of irrationality and injustice in capitalism, uh, our theories should at least consider whether this ecological crisis is itself in part a reflection of these deep structural irrationalities and crisis tendencies. And if we think that capitalism has built in tendencies to economic crisis or to social reproductive crisis or to political crisis, we should at least consider the hypothesis that it also has deep structural tendencies to ecological crisis. That is to think of it in relation to the whole institutionalized social order that we are living in and the contradictions inherent in that social order. So what you do is both. On the one hand, you bring back the question of ecology, the question of nature into critical theory. On the other hand, you argue that we should avoid reductive and bourgeois ecologism and transcend the merely environmental, promoting a trans-environmental anti-capitalism. But then what does capitalism have to do with it? Is the ecological crisis a crisis of capitalism? Right. I do think that there is an ecological crisis tendency built into capitalism. That doesn't mean that it's always expressed in the most acute form of planetary disaster. But what is specific about capitalism is that it basically gives the job of organizing production to people whose raison d'etre is capital accumulation or the maximization of profit. Uh, this is a social system that, in effect, turns over the job of organizing production to a specific class, a specific group of people who have every incentive built in systemically, every incentive to essentially free ride on nature, to take from it whatever serves their profit motive, whatever serves their bottom line, and absolves them of the obligation to repair the damages that this activity creates, to replenish what they take. And that means that they have sort of the lion's share of responsibility for Uh, accessing energy, for accessing raw materials, for organizing food systems. Uh, I mean, they, they 
it's it's like we've given them the job of organizing our relation to nature, of organizing our whole relation to the planet. It's uh, amazing what enormous impact their activities have. And, and as I say, at the same time, their incentive is take, 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 and don't give. And pay as little as humanly possible for what they're accessing. Well, that's that's like a, a formula for big, big trouble. It's a recipe for a potential disaster. And of course, it's true that, you know, we have states stepping in sometimes introducing pollution controls or other regulatory measures. But these are always sort of catch up after the fact and because there's also a problem with the relation between the private power of corporations and the public power of states, this is always a jerry-built and potentially ineffective set of controls. Capital, again, has every incentive to evade regulations, to undermine them, to offshore, to evade taxes, to, to hollow out the public powers that might regulate them. Let me just rephrase this so I can make sure I understood you correctly. You talk about a class of people that is given incentives to free ride and exploit. But at the same time, you've started your argument by referring to a deep-seated structural tendency. So what is the relation between these deep-seated structural or systemic tendencies that refer to economical dynamics and the class of people that profits from their free riding on nature? You know, I deliberately um, started that way because I want to sort of in a very um, concrete and accessible way name the class because it is a system based on class power and class relations. I don't mean to sort of personalize it in, and, and to suggest that it's a question of greed. What my claim is that the system actually rests on these class divisions. It works through them. These are power relations. They're not incidental or accidental. And they are set up in such a way to give that class, the capitalist class, these deep-seated incentives. They are not exactly operating out of greed, if we mean by greed, personal psychological orientations. They are operating by the thirst for profit, which is a structurally built-in motivation. It's part of what it means to be a capitalist, to, to be in that class. So I don't see the, the class story as an alternative to the structural story. I see it as a way of foregrounding something about the class structure of the society. But I could also put it in somewhat different terms, the same point. And here uh, I would say something about um, how this subsystem of capitalist society known as the economy works. The economy works uh, by, on the basis of a peculiar abstraction, which Marx calls value, and, and relations of production, of exchange, of distribution, of appropriation are all monetized in terms of value 
with, again, the capitalist class oriented to uh, things that increase value. They think of it as profit as opposed to value, but okay, that's a technicality. Now, at the same time, this economic system relies on a host of social relations, social activities, natural processes that are considered not to have value, to be sort of outside the economy, and yet they are the necessary preconditions for the operation of the economy. Nature is, in a sense, one of those quote-unquote non-economic presuppositions. So there's a whole um, sense in which capital free rides on nature by treating it as if it did not have any monetized value. And therefore, the sort of working assumption, even if it's not conceptualized in anybody's head, is that we can just take as much of it as we want, convert it into sources of our value production, and somehow it will self-replenish. It will always be there. That, of course, is false, we now know. Um, But it's this idea that something that doesn't have value can be treated as a source that will be converted later into value through the economic machine. And because it didn't have value in the first place, we have no responsibility to it. That's what I think uh, is a kind of, let's say, almost an ontological systemic premise of the system. And in a sense, that's the nub of the contradiction. Nature is is treated as not having value and yet is made into a kind of uh, an input that will be uh, help increase value in the end. And the value that's generated in the end, uh, or at least the profit that's generated in the end, maybe that would be a, a more correct formulation. The profit that's generated in the end depends in part on not paying for the reproduction costs of natural inputs, just as it depends on not paying for the social uh, reproduction costs of, say, care work or of unwaged social activity. This is a, a bit of a revision of Marx, I think. Marx, and of course, it is important that he's speaking of value and not profit. Marx thinks that only labor generates surplus value, only waged labor and that it's the gap between the wage, which covers the workers' social reproduction costs, supposedly, and the surplus hours above and beyond that, that capital appropriates. And and it's that difference between necessary labor time and surplus labor that creates surplus value. And then there are all these problems in Marxism. What's the relation between surplus value and profit? And nobody has ever solved those uh, questions. So what I'm suggesting is that the mystery of profit can be at least partially solved by um, looking at the non-wage labor sources of profit, which have to do with not paying the reproduction costs of inputs from nature, from social reproductive care work, and um, also even from uh, public goods that are supplied by public power. That's a more structural picture. Thank you so much. But let me press you a bit more on the concept of a contradiction here. We both agree that on the conceptual level, 
This is not about logical contradictions, but about some kind of a practical contradiction. Yet, why would free riding, why would not paying the reproduction costs even count as a contradiction in this practical sense? What is contradictory about it? And why is it, is it not just, let's say, disastrous and unfair? And why is it not just a kind of conflict or tension? I mean, if I were to go shoplifting, this might be considered wrong and illegal, but why would that be a contradiction? So what is the key here? That when capital does not pay for the costs of its reproduction, it's not merely exploitative, but deeply contradictory. Um, you're right, it's not a logical contradiction, but uh, as a practical social contradiction, um, the system needs its inputs from nature, but is constructed in such a way that because it takes and doesn't replenish, it destabilizes its own ecological conditions of possibility. That's, in my sense, a contradiction. And I think there's a contradiction of care that has the same structure, a political contradiction that has a similar structure. These are, um, you could call these Polanian contradictions as opposed to Marxian contradictions. They are contradictions between the imperatives of the economic system on the one hand, Uh, which stands in a contradictory relations to its quote-unquote external or non-economic social conditions of possibility. It needs them and yet uh, is uh, driven by virtue of its own systemic incentives to destabilize them, uh, in some cases to deplete them or uh, to trash them. Because as I said before, this system operates as if nature could be infinitely self-replenishing, that you could do absolutely anything to it and you would never face any consequences. That's contradictory. That's false. Okay, so I understand that it's contradictory because it is somehow undermining its own conditions of existence. However, haven't there been other societies, pre-capitalist societies, who have undermined their own conditions of existence as well and who, who have destroyed nature as well? I mean, socialist societies, too, have destroyed nature, even famously so. So what is so special about capitalism's relation to nature? Why would destroying nature, undermining its own preconditions, be some kind of a structural necessity for capitalism, as you seem to think? Whereas with respect to pre-capitalist societies, destroying nature just seems to be an accident. They just didn't know better. So what is so special about capitalism and at what point does bad luck or not knowing enough about those conditions turn into a straightforward contradiction? Yeah, this is an important question. Uh, I would never um, say that capitalist societies are the only ones who have run into ecological trouble. There have been uh, serious ecological disasters that other societies have faced. And you're right that um, many uh, ancient empires in the ancient world, long before capitalism, did large-scale uh, deforestation that caused soil erosion and, and flooding of farmlands and so on. And, and you're right, too, that um, really existing socialist or communist societies burnt coal like there was no tomorrow 
and uh, you know even gave us uh, Chernobyl, for example. So it, it, the the idea is to say that there's a structural contradiction of capitalism that inclines it to ecological crisis is not to say that there are no other forms of ecological crises in other kinds of societies. But my claim is that ancient empires did not have any built-in structural contradiction that led them to do this. They could, in principle, have avoided that. They, they, they did often act out of ignorance. And, and we do have examples of empires that saw the bad effects of uh, doing some deforestation in one area and then stopped doing it and, and tried to repair it. So there was a, a possibility of social learning uh, charting a different path that didn't involve the need to transform the whole institutional framework that they were living in. Now, the the socialist or, or communist societies, um, I would say that um, that I don't believe there is anything in socialism that requires this predatory free riding relation to nature. Uh, I think that those societies embarked on the path they did, the very destructive path that they embarked on, for reasons that were not internally structural to what they were trying to do. I think these were uh, had to do with a larger geopolitical environment. They were operating in the idea that they, they were often uh, thought of themselves as more backward societies that had to ca- catch up, that had to industrialize quickly in a kind of mega uh, developmental way. They saw themselves in competition with capitalist societies in, in the Cold War and, and so on and so forth. So uh, they had very bad ideas about production and about nature. But I don't think these came from the internal structural dynamics of socialism. And without in any way wanting to excuse uh, these uh, disastrous policies or the uh, horrifically authoritarian context in which those policies were developed, I would say that socialist societies could, in principle, avoid ecologically destructive policy. I don't believe that capitalist societies can avoid them. I think that of all the societies that I know about, only capitalism has this deep-seated structural, systemic, ecological contradiction built into it. Maybe there will turn out in the future to be other societies that have that too, but this is the only one uh, I know of now and that I think anyone knows of now. So what I'm claiming is that capitalism requires uh, more than social learning to avoid. It requires more than a, a different geopolitical environment to avoid ecological predation. It actually requires a deep structural transformation of the whole institutional framework. And that puts it in a different category. So you're talking about some kind of self-cannibalization, one might say, a snake biting its own tail. But again, why is it capitalism that is responsible for this self-cannibalization? 
why wouldn't it be possible to say these are the characteristics of, for example, industrial societies? I mean, there are people within the ecological movement who say it's industrialism or even it's modernity with its instrumental relation to nature whom we should blame. But then socialism as an industrial society and with those dynamics that come with a certain kind of technology and the use of technology, they would share the ecologically destructive tendency with capitalism. How do you distinguish then industrial society, capitalist industrial society, and some kind of probably industrial socialist society that would then be able to avoid those ecological disasters? Right. Um, well, first of all, I understand industrialism as a, as a phase of capitalist production. We have capitalism before industrialism, and we even have, at least in certain parts of the globe, the claim that we're, we have a post-industrial uh, form of capitalism, whether it's digital uh, capitalism or whatever it is. So I don't think that um, industrialization is the heart of the issue. And uh, we, we, of course, could have uh, industrial societies that are not capitalist. And I would say the same thing about modernity. We could have modern societies, depending on how we define that term, that are, are not Uh, capitalist. So it's important to disaggregate these ideas. And, and I want to just give, um, again, the specific definition of what I mean by capitalist society, because it doesn't mean industrialism. It means a society that creates a separate economic sphere, a, a zone of instrumental action and interaction that is based on private ownership of the means of production, on wage labor, and then on a host of external supports for all of that. External supports that are at once sort of separated in theory from the economy and treated as non-economic, but are, to use that word that you just mentioned, cannibalized by it, are the sort of sources of extra economic wealth that the production uh, and profit dynamic consumes, free rides on, and destabilizes. That's what I mean by capitalism. And uh, depending on what we mean by modernity and what we value in modernity, if anything, and I do value some things, it doesn't uh, seem at all clear to me that we can't find a way to institutionalize what we value about modernity without that specific separation between economy and nature, economy and polity, economy and community, uh, and so on. So the question of technology to me is, is doesn't go deep enough. Everything depends on how technology is institutionalized, who controls it, who decides which technology, how it's used, What are the social relations of labor, of, of distribution? Uh, uh, what is produced? How much? By whom? Under what conditions? And even questions of scale. I think in a society I want to live in, I think these have to become political questions that are, are not decided by this blind dynamic of capital accumulation, which decides all of those questions behind our backs, basically, and, and removes them from the arena of 
big questions that we as inhabitants of the planet or of specific states on the planet or cities on the planet, right, uh, ought to be um, thinking together about how to answer. You're listening to Critical Theory in Context. My guest today is Nancy Fraser, world-famous critical theorist and socialist feminist. Nancy Fraser and I have been engaged in conversation for a long time, part of which was published in the form of a book entitled Capitalism, a Conversation in Critical Theory. Nancy was originally invited to our center in Berlin to deliver the Benjamin Lectures 2020 on exactly the topic of today's episode. But due to the corona pandemic, it had to be canceled. We are all the more happy that Nancy will deliver the lectures in 2022 now. The Center for Humanities and Social Change in Berlin is based at the Humboldt University in Berlin. In our research, we focus on the crisis of capitalism and democracy. Our aim is to analyze our present situation and to provide and refine the fundamental conceptual tools that guide such analysis. With this broad thematic focus, we take into account the relationship between economy, society and politics and the potential tension or even contradictions created within and between them. Each year we organize various events open to the public and you can check out our website to find out about upcoming events as well as recordings of previous events. The highlight, no doubt, are the already mentioned Benjamin Lectures. These are held by distinguished philosophers who, over the course of three lectures, present their take on key social and political issues relevant to current debates. This year's lectures have just been delivered by Axel Honneth under the title The Working Sovereign, a Democratic Theory of the Division of Labor. Recordings of the lectures, as well as commentaries, will very soon be available on our website, as well as our YouTube channel, as linked in the show notes. But returning to our future Benjamin Chair, Nancy Fraser. Nancy Fraser has developed a theoretical framework that focuses on the big questions surrounding the peculiar social form known as capitalism, upending many of our commonly held assumptions about what capitalism is and how to subject it to critique. She shows how, throughout its history, various regimes of capitalism have relied on a series of institutional separations between economy and polity, production and social reproduction, and human and non-human nature, periodically readjusting the boundaries between these domains in response to crises and upheavals. Tracing how these boundary struggles offer a key to understanding capitalism's contradictions and the multiple forms of conflict to which it gives rise, She has managed to reconceptualize capitalism as an institutionalized social order, an order in crisis. And now we will hear more about the way Nancy applies this framework of hers to an understanding of the ecological crisis in the second part of our discussion on climates of capital. So let's get to the question why capitalism cannot solve the problem. You argue that we cannot save the planet without abolishing capitalism. And you repeatedly insist that the social movements 
that the environmental movements should become trans-environmental and anti-capitalist in order to deal with the problem at its core. Yet, if you have a look at some of these movements, a lot of hopes rest on something like a, like a green capitalism or even a Green New Deal that does not abolish capitalism, but instead somehow tames capitalism's disastrous tendencies. So what is wrong with the green capitalism? You argue that capitalism is free riding on nature and other spheres of the society. But what, for example, is wrong about just putting a price on it and thus stop the kind of externalization of costs that is going on now? Okay, right. Um, I mean, I can answer this at two different levels. I think I've already explained that I see this tendency to ecological self-destabilization as uh, entrenched at a very deep level in the social system, that the social system depends on the economy not being wholly coextensive with everything in the social and natural world. It depends on, on, it needs an outside. I can't actually prove this, but my intuition is that if capital had to pay the full reproduction costs of everything it took from nature from communities, from the uh, non-waged activities of human beings across the planet, if it had to pay for all of that, I'm not actually convinced that there would be any profit, really. Th this is an argument, and I know that it, it's controversial and a lot of people think it didn't work, but it's an argument that Rosa Luxemburg tried to make when she redid all of Marx's formulas about expanded reproduction, trying to show that, um, that without the outside to plunder, to siphon wealth, non-monetized wealth from the outside, that you wouldn't have this kind of system. That's my hunch and my intuition. So that sort of reiterates the structural argument. Now, um, you ask about uh, more specific strategies. So uh, green capitalism, as I understand it, is a Uh, a project, a, a kind of neoliberal financialized project that aims to use markets to regulate access uh, to nature. It's the whole carbon trading scheme, the uh, buying and selling of offsets and uh, permissions and so on. So I'm very struck by work that uh, Larry Lohman has done which really argues that all of this relies on a view of what nature is that is fundamentally problematic. It, it relies on the idea that everything is completely fungible, that if I set up a, uh, a tree plantation here, that that makes up for the belching smoke factory there. And the, the fact is that uh, climate science and ecological science, I think, shows us that it doesn't work that way, that there are, uh, that you have to pay attention to sort of local integrated ecosystems embedded within the broader planetary system. So there's, there's that problem. There's also the problem, and we, this is already happening, that in practice, carbon trading, it just it attracts humongous amounts of capital, 
which speculates in these permits and essentially works to draw investment away from the kind of massive publicly coordinated investment that you would need. It's not leading to defossilization of the world economy. It's leading to speculation. And we actually have now uh, on Wall Street this huge trade in in so-called environmental derivatives, which work exactly the way that those housing mortgage derivatives work. So this is a further destabilization, I would say, um, and one that isn't having the effects. You could say, well, does it have to work that way? Could there be other curbs and so on? And we'll have to, to look and see what kinds of specific schemes people come up with. Green New Deal is an alternative. Uh, That really is a a, a return to the idea that we use state power and not the market. It's a kind of dirigisme to do um, big public spending that will institute a transition to renewables that will reduce carbon, zero carbon, and, and, and so on and so forth. The trouble with Green New Deal, and I think it's the trouble with the original New Deal, um, first of all, we, we currently have it as, as a, a national project. We would need to figure out how you could have a global Green New Deal in order to deal with this problem. What kinds of global public powers and could they be democratic, sufficiently democratic and, and so on to be um, really responsive? to the various um, environmental social movements and eco-political formations around the world. The original New Deal, we now understand retrospectively, involved a a certain kind of unpleasant trade-off in which the um, more or less generous social provisions that were made available in wealthy countries of the global north, social democratic countries, were uh, at least in large part paid for through a whole industrialism uh, based on the internal combustion engine and refined oil and therefore involved siphoning uh, energy and other forms of raw material wealth from the global south. So it wasn't universalizable. Could it be done in a way that was universalizable today? unclear. In any case, it faces enormous opposition, then then we move to the really pragmatic level, from uh, from capital, from firms that have huge sunk costs in the fossil fuel industry. And we have, you know, a time issue. How much time do we actually have to do this? Which brings me to the question of the dimension and characteristic of the very crisis we are facing. One could say that capitalism has been crisis-driven ever since it existed. One could even say that world history has been crisis-driven all the way down. So, I mean, there seems to be a difference between the crisis we are facing now and a crisis that has some developmental character as part of the dynamics of social change, one that leads to at least partially overcoming the problem and makes the society go on with some kind of different practices, different understandings about what's going on. 
Now, you could say that capitalism is a specific kind of a learning blockage because it blocks these learning processes and that unless we get rid of capitalism, we would not be able to even go through this developmental process anymore. But again, capitalism itself has had those developmental crises. I mean, as you yourself describe in your paper, historically, capitalism has shifted the costs of its reproduction. It has shifted its strategies. So again, how can we be sure that capitalism does not come up with some new, new trick, as you call it, in order to at least partially overcome, to at least lessen the kind of emergency, the kind of urgency that comes with the climate crisis? Isn't this how human history has developed all the time? And isn't it always the case that there is not the one and final solution to the innermost contradiction, but that there are problems coming up, solutions that somehow partially solve these problems, and then new problems and side effects coming out of the new solutions arise? So why wouldn't capitalism just be able to go on with this, develop a new trick and go on with it? What kind of crisis is the ecological crisis that it does not allow for this? I mean, in some sense, you seem to think that this is a crisis of a different order, an epical crisis even, that would put all those other crises to an end somehow. Is that what you think? Yeah, this is this is a great question because now we're um, getting into sort of um, the historical uh, level of crises, how they unfold their character in history, as opposed to the sort of structural contradiction idea that we were talking about before. And I want to um, mention really two distinctions at this level. Um, One is the distinction between a sectoral crisis and a general crisis. So a sectoral crisis would be uh, where one quote unquote contradiction of capital, say the economic contradiction, um, enters into an acute phase and you have an economic crisis that is not uh, at least immediately a crisis of the entire social order, but of one part of it, and then could be fixed, in, at least in theory, by rejiggering that part somehow. Whereas a general crisis is one in which uh, a whole set of different contradictions or crisis tendencies in capitalism converge. So then you would have the convergence of an ecological crisis, a political crisis, social reproductive crisis, and a uh, an economic crisis. Those kinds of crises, these general crises, are quite rare in the history of capitalism. I think we've only had about three or four of them. And my um, hunch is that we are living through one of those rare general crises today. Um, I don't think there's any way to be absolutely sure as to how it will unfold or even if it turns out to really be that because we are you know finite situated creatures with limited uh, understanding of uh, what's happening now we don't have the luxury of, of retrospection but my best guess is that this is a general crisis And this sort of speaks um, to a point we might want to come back to because you mentioned trans-environmentalism, the idea that if it is a general crisis, then it, it may not be adequate to focus only on the eco, uh, ecological dimension, the environmental dimension, but we may need to look at those convergences and how that 
element of crisis intertwines with and meet and exacerbates and is exacerbated by other dimensions, social, economic, political, and so on. But I want to also mention this second distinction about crises, which Rahel, you just yourself invoked, and that's the distinction between a developmental crisis and an epical crisis. A developmental crisis pertains to how a given phase of capitalism is organized in a way that is intended at overcoming or softening or dealing with or finessing the way that a previous phase ran into trouble, the way a previous phase unraveled. And then you get a a development of a new regime of capitalism, a new phase of capitalism that is differently organized, that handles these built-in structural contradictions in a somewhat different way that has the effect of diffusing or softening them, not definitively overcoming them, but at least overcoming the very specific form in which they became acute in the previous phase. That's a developmental crisis. It doesn't overcome capitalism. It's the transition from mercantile capitalism to liberal colonial capitalism or from liberal capitalism to social democratic or state organized capitalism or from that to neoliberal capitalism. So the first question that anyone who thinks we're in a a general crisis now has to ask, is this merely a developmental crisis that can be provisionally resolved by the transition to some new phase, some new way of organizing the polity economy contradiction, a new way of organizing the production reproduction contradiction, a new way of organizing the society nature contradiction. Is there um, some new sort of rejiggering of these boundaries and of the relations among these these distinct spheres that could um, at least overcome the very acute unlivability? And and could it do that? Uh, I mean, then the question you have to ask is, do that for whom? Because in all of these reorganizations, there have been some sizable populations who have borne the brunt, who bear the, the most um, severe burdens and costs in the non-economic sense, so that others can live relatively um, livable lives. And I don't think any of these reorganizations actually serve everyone equally well. But I do think that what climate scientists are telling us about the severity uh, of the the situation of the planet means it's a new kind of, let's say, seemingly external limit that causes me to feel more pessimistic about capitalism's ability to get a handle on this. It does seem to be a question of a different order. Again, I I can't say with absolute certainty. It's also possible that capitalism, that there will be a new regime of capitalism that develops to replace the current neoliberal or financialized regime 
that can limp along for a while, a couple of decades, without really solving the ecological problem. And so that this turns out to be a little bit of, of breathing room, but that the whole thing goes really bad afterwards. So uh, I think we have no um, alternative but to try now, given what we know from climate science, we have no alternative but to try now for the kind of a restructuring, the kind of social transformation that seems more likely, if it can be done, to give us a permanent solution. That is a solution that that really overcomes this institutionalized dynamic of self of ecological self-destabilization through this free riding on nature dynamic. Thank you so much for those clarifications, because this is actually the reason why I asked the question that somehow crisis theory has this bad reputation due to all those false predictions. I mean, Marxists over decades have been predicting the end of the world or of capitalism, and yet here we still are. So you are a bit more reluctant to predict the future, this I understand. But there are two more concerns that I have with respect to the concept of crisis as well as the ecological crisis. The first one I have briefly mentioned in the very beginning, and you're taking this is very clear. You said one shouldn't just expect to be all in one boat. This is in response to this emergency discourse that leads us back to something like, this is about the survival of humanity, so we are all in one boat now facing this catastrophe together. And that does not seem to be true at all. But there's also a second danger, I think, in this kind of crisis talk, and that is to fall back to a concept that draws on the functional crisis or only the functional dimension of a crisis, making it sound as if the whole problem is a problem of dysfunctionality. However, I think if there was one lesson that we have learned by criticizing earlier versions of crisis theory, it is that there is no such thing as a purely functional crisis. That with respect to social orders and entities, there is no such thing as pure dysfunctionality, as there is always an at least slightly normative strand. Then we are not simply undermining the conditions of our existence, we are undermining the kind of life we want to live and we think is worth living. So even if capitalism would be able to invent one more trick, as you said, there's still the problem that someone has to pay the cost. So we might resist the solution that might be offered by capitalism to the ecological problem on normative grounds. And in that case, people might stop to comply with the social order, or in some cases have already stopped to comply with the social order that creates those costs. But this then leaves us with a more nuanced picture than the concept of the purely functional crisis can offer. I think we should hold on and continue to anal analyze the dimension of dysfunctionality. But in order to renew a crisis critique of capitalism, we also have to insist that the functional and the normative are intertwined here. Social crises are always also normative crises. They have a normative dimension as well as political dimensions. Yes, I completely agree with what you've just said. And I try to always sort of put together these things. I think that right now we are living in a kind of perfect storm of capitalist crisis in which all this general crisis in which everything has converged. And by the way, COVID, uh, the pandemic is a perfect 
sort of diagnostic of, of all of these forces that are converging. I would say it's a perfect storm of capitalist irrationality and injustice, and that these are totally intertwined. The dysfunctionality and the normative questions are intertwined. Now, some people may uh, feel, you and I, and hopefully there's quite a few more of us, may say, we don't want to solve this off the backs of some designated scapegoat uh, who will pay the price. But unfortunately, I don't think that that idea is front and center in the minds of many people. I think that to take a, a realistic view of the sort of political landscape and the responses of people in your country, in mine, and elsewhere, and these are the political forces we have to work with and have to somehow woo and enlighten or whatever the word is. I do sort of worry about the sort of Green New Deal idea insofar as it remains a national U.S. project, uh, which is not to say I'm totally against it or anything, but I think it's something that has an ambivalence built into it that needs to be politically addressed. And the problem is, how do you appeal to people to say, not me, but humanity in this sense, okay? And... Um, you can either do that in a wholly sort of moral way, uh, or you can do it in, in terms of uh, uh, how the fates are connected, how it's not actually possible to disconnect. So I think you have to do both. These are, uh, you know, somehow um, the, the second might look more like an appeal to self-interest, um, but it, it could also be a kind of transition toward a more solidaristic um, mind, mind frame. And, um, and then you also raise this question that has to do not even with uh, who's going to, the designated scapegoats, who's going to pay the, the price, uh, the, which would be a question of sort of justice, injustice. You also raise the question about quality of life. What kind of relation do we want to have to nature if that question is even a meaningful question because maybe nature is too big of a category there to even talk about uh, but what kinds of social relations what kinds of communities what kinds of self-governance structures and so on and so forth uh, again these are these are all also uh, normative questions um, but they um, they have to do with kind of uh, reimagining the social order in such a way as, uh, first of all, we make them questions for us. As I said earlier, they've been taken off the table and basically decided uh, in large part by the accumulation dynamic itself or by the, the sort of difficult dance between the key the accumulation dynamic and the very truncated uh, forms of political life that uh, and state power that we now have. Uh, so I think that we do want to integrate these questions of sort of dysfunctionality and irrationality, I would say, with the question of justice and with the question of sort of broadening our collective freedom to uh, broach questions of 
form of life. I very much like the idea of giving thought to how the fates are connected and to then develop a broader conception of solidarity. So I would very much like to talk a little bit more about this. Let's maybe start with the connectedness of those fates. How do those multiple crises and those multiple contradictions that appear in a whole variety of social movements and social struggles actually relate to one another? I mean, we do have a lot of struggles that are connected to the ecological question, but we also have a lot of other struggles that are being fought or are coming to the forefront right now. Reading your paper at some point, you say, luckily all roads lead to one idea that is capitalism and one could add that all those roads lead to one underlying cause at another point in your paper you say it is important to put all of these crises into a single frame however the question now is do all those different crises actually fit into one frame is it actually always one road and one set of causes don't you then leave out those dynamics that exist on their own within other social spheres and other spheres of crisis those dynamics that might not all be related to a single cause that somehow triggers everything else that goes wrong are you not in the danger then to fall back into some idea of let's say main contradiction and secondary or side contradiction Right. So I'm trying to sort of uh, keep together uh, two ideas. One is that there is one social totality, and that is the proper frame in which to situate what's going on. And I call that capitalist society. Uh, but on the other hand, it is internally differentiated and harbors uh, quite a few at least analytically distinct crisis tendencies. And as these play out, different populations, different groups of people are differently affected and differently situated. Not everyone is in exactly the same boat. And none of these multiple dysfunctionalities, irrationalities, crisis tendencies is primary and should function as a trump that, in a sense, overrides the others or treats them as secondary or peripheral. And that's important from the standpoint of what it means to try to organize politically. I do think that we will need a very large counter-hegemonic block of political forces for a transformation that can really deal with these very severe issues. But I don't think we can get to such a block by designating something as the primary contradiction or some group of people as the primary agent of emancipation or any of those old uh, tropes. Those will not help us. They, they will actually cause trouble. So my idea is that um, in a situation like the present, which is this general crisis that might turn out to be an epical crisis, uh, a very severe crisis that might be resolvable only through transition to a non or post capitalist form of society, that this is a situation which is being experienced by many people across the globe as unlivable, as an, as an impasse, as something that is not easy to sort of patch up in the usual way through standard uh, reform policies. More and more people feel that something has to give 
and are looking for new projects, new political leadership, new ways of living. Many of the solutions in quotes that they are gravitating toward are really, really bad that, right, include forms of authoritarianism, white supremacy, proto-fascism, and whatever you want to call this, uh, right-wing populism. Uh, These are not the answer. And there are also some solutions that are being developed that maybe are, are not perfect, but that have some emancipatory potential and could evolve in ways that would be interesting. I'm open to the idea that the Green New Deal is one that could evolve. I don't, I think that, as I said, it has some ambivalences in it for now, including the idea that uh, like social democracy, that we could serve the corporations and the population, the democratic population, and and keep everyone in the investors and everybody happy. Um, I'm not so sure about that. But I think that the, the, the other dimension of the crisis that we haven't talked about is the hegemonic crisis. The idea that neoliberalism as a, a worldview has lost a great deal of its persuasiveness and credibility in many uh, places for many people. And to me, anti-capitalism is uh, the potential nucleus of a counter-hegemonic common sense a counter-hegemonic project because it's broad, capacious, and multi-dimensional in the way I'm understanding it. People are, are struggling and they have their own issue in many cases, different social movements, different political movements. Wherever people are situated, they experience something in their situation as problematic, as existentially primary. Maybe it's the care dimension, maybe it's the ecological dimension, maybe it's the economic dimension, whatever it is, they are, they are where they are. We're not going to create social conflict. It happens. We're not going to create social struggle. But what I would hope to see is that through a kind of social learning, people come to understand their relation among different struggles. And I think that the one route to understanding that relation is to understanding capitalism in this sense, that this is what connects us. It's not that we have the exact same problem. It's not that the life conditions are the same, but what connects us is that in every case, the problems are locatable on a map. And the map is this view of capitalism as incubating all of these contradictions and crises. And I think that if to the degree that that understanding becomes widespread, we have the basis for coalitions, for alliances, for counter-hegemonic articulations, that would hold some political promise and that would point toward at least the possibility of thinking of a project for living differently, a project that would be an alternative to green capitalism, which is the the project that uh, uh, the people I think of as our enemies are hoping to woo people into.
So there are some fashion model theories that in different ways claim that we need not only to reinvent our relation to nature, but also to go for something that is sometimes called a new ontology, a new way to blur the boundaries between the natural and the cultural, or that we should go for for new or sometimes even old cosmologies. So my question would be, how is your position towards this claim? Do we need to give up the anthropocentric perspective altogether if we have to reinvent our relation to nature or to develop a non-instrumental relation to nature? I somehow have the feeling that you try to navigate between the instrumental relation to nature that we see in capitalism and should give up on, on the one hand, and the danger of romanticizing nature on the other hand, which we should avoid. You actually call it the flip side of the instrumental relation to nature, the kind of romanticizing nature uh, position. So for a critical theorist, what is the proper take on these new ontologies, old ontologies, or the attempt to reinvent our relation to nature? I mean, critical theory, while criticizing instrumental reason, famously located the problem deeper than those orthodox Marxists that celebrated the growth of the means of production and that focus on how to rationally make use of nature. So early on in critical theory already, there has already been the problem of nature and how to relate differently to it. But still, it seems to me that those new ontologies, the so-called new materialism, for example, somehow locate the problem even too deep. Or to put this differently, they avoid the real issue by just addressing the problems at an unsuitably deep level and are not taking into account what this kind of re-enchantment of nature would lead us to. So this is the kind of thing that I'm concerned with when thinking about new ontologies, new re relation to nature and so on. And I guess my question then is, what is so wrong about human beings shaping their conditions of living? What is so wrong about being in some kind of relation to nature that is transformative of nature? So I think that I'm very much on the same wavelength as you and the, the view that you've just articulated, uh, suspicious or ambivalent about re-enchantment, but, you know, also interested in some major changes in, in, in how we deal with nature. So I would like to sort of disaggregate this question. Part of the problem is this word nature is so huge uh, and um, it it's immediately sets up you know, that we're here and nature is there as if we're not ourselves natural beings and so on. Look, what I want to say is that natural science is good. <laughs> and the whole idea that an objectivating relation to nature in this cognitive way is, is a problem, is the root of some imperial worldview, that is completely unpersuasive to me. So natural science is good. Ecological predation is bad. I mean, I just can't we just separate some of these things? This idea of that you can just endlessly spew carbon emissions or uh, gouge uh, huge parts of the earth to to dig up rare earth metals or so on. You know, so this is problematic. But the interesting thing, of course, is that it, it, it's natural science in part, as well as okay, critical theory, that explains to us why the ecological predation is bad. So to throw them into the same basket is hugely problematic. 
I would say an instrumental relation is to nature is neither good nor bad, or it, it depends how. It can be very bad when it becomes predatory. I think the problem is if, if you get some very crude, totalized uh, version of instrumentalization. But instrumental action is a normal part of life. It's not the end-all and be-all of life, but it's not something you can or should want to eliminate, in my opinion. And then I would say that the idea that, that we or any species could live on the planet without uh, having transformative effects on nature through our activity, in, which is, after all, a metabolic relation to nature, that doesn't even make any sense. So again, the question is, um, what kind of transformation? Is it the result of thoughtful, careful reflection, at, at least to the degree that we're able? Or is it just blind, uh, you know, thoughtless, mechanically driven uh, activity aimed at piling up more of that surplus value. I argued in the essay that the whole idea of romanticizing nature actually emerges as a, what uh, I called an environmentalism of the rich, which is completely different from the actual social struggles of poor and working class people across the globe for who are living in conditions in which harms to human community and to their habitats are deeply intertwined. And I, I think we can read Friedrich Engels as one of the great social environmentalists. The book about Manchester is precisely about the, the, the class problem of harm to, to families, harm to a class, harm to humans, in and through harms to their environment, their local environment. So um, for most people, most of the time, environmentalism is not a standalone thing that aims to protect something called nature with a capital N that then is romanticized. That only emerges for people whose own existential conditions are not threatened, who are, you know, living in some nice, relatively nice place and with a, a relatively secure livelihood and, you know, relatively conducive uh, community and family uh, conditions for whom then the question of nature, capital N, right, is, a, is a, an object of sublimity, of reverence, of need to protection. And then you, 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 you get the early uh, environmentalisms of the rich aimed at wilderness preservation, which are and in the United States, we now know that the construction of, of all these great national parks that we all love were, you know, based on stealing lands from indigenous peoples and so on and so forth. So there's a whole story about the environmentalism of the rich. What's interesting about today, though, is that we have indigenous movements that offer their uh, conceptions of nature, whether it's Pachamama or Mother Earth or or some other idea, and that um, and and th that they offer these as an alternative. This is is interesting because this is a, a, a 
I don't know if it would be fair to call it nature romanticization exactly, but it is a, um, an environmentalism of the poor that is offering something different. So it's a little different from the uh, rich romanticizations of nature. And I would say that the most important thing to do is to deinstitutionalize the fundamental capitalist idea that you can take, take, take without replenishing, replenishing, replenishing. Uh, and then how different groups of people want to imagine the natural world and the human relation to it, maybe there's room for some pluralism there. Uh, I personally probably am not, you know, going to gravitate to the Pachamama worldview, but if it's not intrinsically connected to male domination or to some other big problem, I don't have a problem with, with people who do want to live that way, but I don't think we need to universalize it in order to attack the main enemy. And that's part of, again, that question of what it means to build a counter hegemony. I, I don't think we need to insist that there be a, a agreement on one philosophy of nature in order to build a trans-environmental anti-capitalist coalition. This was Critical Theory in Context on Climates of Capital. Our guest today was Nancy Fraser, socialist, feminist, critical theorist, and professor at the New School for Social Research in New York. In the next episode of our podcast, we will be talking with Andreas Malm and Lise Benoit from the Zetkin Collective about their just published book, White Skin, Black Fool, the first comprehensive study of the far right's role in various countries in the context of the climate crisis. Stay tuned for another big upcoming event of our center. As part of our series, Conversations on Socialism, we have organized a roundtable entitled A New Socialism for the New Century with three of the internationally most prominent socialist theorists. Bashka Zunkara, founding editor and publisher of Jacobin magazine, Christine Berry from the New Economics Foundation, and Axel Honneth, our Benjamin Chair and one of the leading social philosophers of our time. Join us live on Zoom or check out the recording of the event afterwards on our website. By the way, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on any of the major platforms. And stay up to date with all our events of the Center for Humanities and Social Change in Berlin. Sign up for our newsletter on our website, www.criticaltheoryinberlin.de. My name is Rahel Jägi. Thank you for listening. Bye for now. Take care. And I hope you will join us again next time. Thank you.